Now, I want you to imagine that you're a Hebrew and you've been tired and weary from traveling across the land and you've, in your mind, been thinking and preparing about the, the Passover meal that's coming and sort of your family has been talking about the preparations and the different things that are going to go on in your home and at this time you're you're worshiping in the tabernacle and so when you come to the tabernacle and the the early evening you're outside it's it's kind of dim you can't see very well as you're approaching the tabernacle there's lights and torches outside you can hear the choir resounding from inside calling God's people to prepare themselves to come to to worship the Lord through this feast of remembrance through this time this opportunity that they have to recall all that God's done you know we we do the same thing we we have meals that are special meals where we get together as a family. Thanksgiving's in a few weeks. We'll be sitting at tables with our family, our closest friends, and we'll eat certain food that we always eat, and we'll probably tell certain stories that we always tell. And the whole point of that meal will be to Remember something that has happened in the past and how it impacts our life today. It's interesting how many people will sit at a table and maybe eat turkey or ham or some various assortment of things that we consider to be Thanksgiving foods, but really not know the story of Thanksgiving. Have no idea that all this started in 1621 with a group of pilgrims who were eating with some Indians and celebrating this harvest meal. It's just Thanksgiving. It's a time to give thanks, a time to be grateful, a time to be thankful for all that God's done. Christmas will be right around the corner from that. For most families in this room, there'll be a Christmas meal. Maybe there's a certain dish that your family always eats. Maybe as you get together, certain family members have their own special dish that they bring. But we will sit somewhere and eat a Christmas meal. And that meal is designed to commemorate a past experience and to solidify in our hearts how that past event affects us today. For most people, Christmas is their favorite holiday. And yet for most people, Luke chapter 2 won't be read. The story of the birth of Christ won't be told. We'll just skip all that and dive right into the presence. You see, the Passover is a meal that's designed to cause those who partake of it to remember why they're doing what they do and to be refreshed and renewed in how the events that took place in the past have impacted their present. Think of it as a Hebrew 4th of July. In the same way that we celebrate our independence, that was their celebration of freedom. The Passover was their, their way of commemorating when God had led them out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And so every year, the 15th day of the month of Nisan, we would sit as Hebrew people for generation after generation after generation and share in this meal. 1,500 years. 
God's people did this. And so one day, right at the end of Jesus' ministry, before he goes to the cross, he gathers his disciples together in an upper room, sort of separate from all the chaos that I'm sure was going around, people moving about, you know, it's sort of like the maybe Black Friday. He gets them in the upper room. They sit at the table, those closest to him. There's Judas right at the table. The one who in just a couple hours is going to betray him, sitting right there at the table. He'll even get up, gird himself and take a wash basin and wash Judas's feet. Just reminding us of the true nature of Christ and what it really means to love your enemies. You know, when, when you gather for Thanksgiving or maybe for Christmas... There's probably going to be some people around that table that have betrayed you in some way. I know that it's different for all of us, but I also know that no family's perfect. I know that when we get together and we sit around the table, for some of you, there'll be the experience maybe of thinking about how your own parents in some way uh, hurt you and, and you still struggle with that. There might be some who, there's a, a family member who will be there who has caused deep pain and hurt in your life. Maybe even children that are wayward and out in the world have caused a lot of hurt and maybe even bitterness and resentment to build up inside of you. And there's Jesus sitting at the table knowing full well what Judas is going to do. And so this meal that they share, this Passover meal, everything about the meal, every little detail about the meal meant something. And there was instruction. You know, the idea that the kids would just start ripping into the presence before there was any conversation about why the tree and the presence and everything else were even there in the first place. It, it just, it, it couldn't happen at the Passover. Because you had to go through these steps and all these steps were there to solidify in your heart exactly what had gone on. So they scooted up to the table, I'm sure, in the upper room and began as they always did. There was some some salt water and some bitter herb like horseradish. And that that bitter herb was there to remind them of the bitterness of slavery. And they would take their bread and they would scoop it into that bitter herb and they would eat it and it would make their eyes water and they'd begin to tear up. And so there were tears already flowing as they were even just beginning the meal of the reality of the tears that were shed by their ancestors as they slaved away for 400 years. And the bread even, the the matzah, the unleavened bread, It was unleavened, you recall, because when God sent Moses to deliver the people from captivity in Egypt, remember Moses went before Pharaoh and he told Pharaoh to let his people go. And, of course, Pharaoh refused. And so there was plague after plague after plague. And so by the time it got to the tenth and final plague, God told the people to be prepared and ready to go. And so he told them on that night when the, the death angel would pass over, he said, you need to be 
ready to go when you eat that meal. And so you slaughter the lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of the house so that the death angel will pass over and your firstborn will live. But as you prepare that meal, don't put yeast, which represents sin, don't put yeast in the bread because you won't have time for it to raise, to rise up. And so that first Passover meal they ate with their sandals on, girded up, ready to go, standing at the table, symbolizing the quickness of God's salvation, not knowing when, but just knowing that God would save them. And so their unleavened bread that's striped and pierced, In 1,500 years, they ate this meal. In 1,500 years, they thought they understood exactly what everything meant. And they thought they, they knew all the symbolism that was before them. But Jesus, by the time he gets to the upper room, by the time he sits down for the last time with his disciples, he had already been preparing them for a long time. For a new understanding of the Passover. He had already been pointing them forward to what could happen. But they still, they couldn't understand. Remember back in John chapter 6. When Jesus fed the 5,000. You know, it was was a lot more than 5,000 people there. There There's 5,000 heads of households. So there was probably at least 15,000, maybe 20,000 people there. They're out there in that remote area and they're hungry and the disciples start to get nervous because there's nothing to feed the people. And so Jesus takes a few loaves and fishes and feeds all the people. And then the Bible says in verse 12 that when they were all filled... Jesus told the disciples to gather up the fragments that remained so that nothing was lost. Therefore, then they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments of barley loaves, which were left over from those who had eaten. This is really the pinnacle of Jesus' earthly popularity. The crowds were as big as they had ever been. The Bible says next that then... uh, the men that were there, they, after seeing what Jesus had, had done, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. You see, they, they knew from celebrating the Passover. They knew from what happened after that first Passover. They knew that Moses had fed people. And so they thought, like Moses, this must be the Messiah. He's feeding people in the wilderness. And then in verse 15, the Bible says in John chapter 6, that therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he fled. You see, because they wanted to make him king right then and there. And so he goes to the other side. He gets in a boat, crosses to the other side. He goes to Golan Heights. He goes to a place where you would never... Go looking for anybody. It's totally remote. It's totally uh, isolated from everywhere. And what do the people do? They come back the next day. They realize Jesus isn't around. They see the boats are gone. And they all go all the way around to the other side. And they pile up where Jesus is again. And when they see him, they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? And then in verse 30, They said to Jesus, well, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do, Jesus? Jesus, we want to see you bring food. We want want to see you do miraculous things for our benefit, Jesus. We want to see you wow us with your, your power and your authority. Our fathers, the Bible goes on to say, ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see, they're equating him with 
Moses in the time in the desert. And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. See, Jesus is establishing truth. He's he's pushing truth into their their understanding of the Passover, even now in John chapter 6. So they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus says, I am the bread. I'm the bread of life. You're talking to the bread of life. You're standing in front of the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. You see, Jesus is saying, I am the miracle. You you want to see a miracle, but you're looking at the miracle. That the, the whole purpose of the miracle is to point you to me. And you can't get your eyes off of the miracle. Sometimes we get wrongly persuaded that the miracles that Jesus performed were done so to prove His power and His deity. They did that. They certainly proved that He was God. But they weren't done specifically for that reason. They're indicators of what Jesus came to do. Because if you stop and think about the miracles that Jesus performed, it will quickly become apparent to you that Jesus didn't do miracles based on the greatest wow factor. He didn't do what would be the most miraculous thing in a situation. Feeding 5,000 people is quite miraculous. But it's not the most miraculous thing He could have done. I mean, Jesus could have snapped his fingers and a whole string of McDonald's could have popped up out of the floor. Jesus could have caused the the water in the sea next to him to curl up into a ball and fly into space and come back down in some form of something to eat. Jesus could have transformed himself, the people. He could have done anything he wanted to do. But you see, all the miracles that Jesus performed were in response to suffering, in response to decay, in response to injustice. Jesus performed miracles, yes, because He was God, but the miracles He performed were to point us toward why He came. That He came to mend what was broken. And that's why when, remember when John the Baptist was doubting the deity of Christ, when he was confused about whether or not Jesus was the Messiah and he was sitting in jail and uh, beginning to, to wonder. And so he sent word to Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. And so I want you to look closely at these words. John had heard in prison about the words of Christ, the works of Christ, and he sent two of his disciples and they said to him, Jesus, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus is saying to John, the way that you know that I am the Messiah is not because I do miracles, it's because I mend what is broken. Because I'm putting things back the way they're intended to be. Because my power and my authority, although it is unlimited, I use it to do that which the Father has sent me to do, and that only. It's to restore and it's to mend. You see, Jesus didn't create you and me to live broken. We weren't created to be broken. And He's moving us towards our return to the way things are supposed to be. And as His children, we gather around a table. 
to be reminded that He's the mender, that He's the one that said, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Jesus didn't come to be a a guide for life. He didn't come to bring rules for life. He came to establish that when you come to Him, you get life. He is the life. You don't come to Jesus. You You don't get Jesus. You don't become a Christian and then say, okay, what do I have to do to get life? When you get Him, you've got life. It's all one step. So that means that that which is not broken must become broken to mend those who are broken. If you think about it, the bread, what would it have looked like? It wouldn't have been bunny bread or wonder bread. It would have been a loaf of bread. A whole loaf of bread. And there's only one way to eat that bread. You have to break it. Whether it's flat unleavened bread or whether it's bread with leaven, you have to break the bread to eat it. You can't shove the entire loaf of bread in your mouth. And so Jesus is just illustrating that if the bread is not broken, you starve. The only way for you to be nourished is through breaking the bread. Nourishment comes through the breaking. And broken bread then can nourish those who partake of it. But if the bread remains unbroken, all starve and all die. And so he says, I am that bread. Now, it's easy for us to think, why couldn't they get it? The end of John chapter 6 says that the vast, vast majority of those who were there that day, they walked away and never followed Jesus again. Why couldn't they link what he was saying to all the prophecies that had come before. Why, why couldn't they see the correlation of him being the bread to Isaiah 53 where the prophet Isaiah talking about Jesus said, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the prophet Isaiah is preparing the way. Just like John the Baptist is preparing the way. That there's history is beginning to part. It's beginning to split. It's beginning to make way for the grand arrival of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But he hasn't come to be king. He won't let the people make him king. His agenda is different than what they desire or even what they perceive. He's come to be wounded. He's come to take stripes that were due us that would heal us because we've all gone astray. We've all turned our own way. And so the Lord's laid all the iniquity upon him. And this is why you and I must take this very seriously. Because when we come to this meal, there's a lot of harsh words in the Bible. There's a lot of scary verses in the Bible. But I don't know that there's any place in Scripture scarier than 1 Corinthians 11. I don't know that there's anything that ought to put pause in us. Like the Apostle Paul's words concerning the Lord's Supper when he says to 
that anyone who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. Judgment. Not discerning the Lord's body. That you cannot come before the table flippantly. Paul goes on to say, For this reason many are weak and sick among you. And many sleep. Even die. Because what's at issue here is not what we think. It's not what... It's not, it's not about the importance that we place on it. It's about what God thinks. It's about what God has said. It's about what matters to God. And so there are areas in our life when it comes to worship that God is very specific about the way in which He wants us to approach Him. And this is one of those areas where He is specifically commanding all those who belong to Him to repent, to repent of their sin, to ask God to cleanse us, and then to partake, realizing that He is the bread of life. And this broken piece of bread that we receive represents His broken body. That God does not and will not ever allow to be taken lightly. So if you're here this morning and if you're uncertain about where you are in your relationship with Christ, if you are not a child of God, if you have never been born again by the Spirit of God and become a a new creation in Him, then you simply pass the plate to the person next to you. Don't partake. And if you are a child of God, then you are commanded by God to take very seriously that which is about to happen and to recognize and realize that this bread that for 1,500 years meant the quickness of God's salvation. That it's unleavened because you, you never know when God is going to come and say, now's the time to go. We don't know when rescue is going to come. So we're ready to go for 1,500 years. And then it's at this meal. It's at this meal. That the bread of life is sitting at the table. And he's saying, for 1,500 years, you have been breaking this bread and affixing it to a time when God came and rescued you. And yes, he did come and rescue you. But it was all pointing to now. Because now the rescue, now the miracle is right here before you. And so for you and me, that piece of bread in our hand, it represents the price of our rescue. It represents the sacrifice made on our behalf. That we cannot be clouded up with the trivial pursuits of this life in this moment. We need to focus and realize the gravity and the glory and the reality. That even if you don't understand fully to be able to say this morning that He's the one that I love more than anything, you should at least be able to understand that He's the one that loves you more than anyone. And that bread represents the one that loves you more than anyone, broken, broken for you.
Pray with me. Father, we come before you now. And Lord God, we we confess that, Father God, we came to this life broken. And Father God, our sin and our strivings, our shallowness, our pride, our selfishness, have just overwhelmed our lives and caused us to be separated from you, Father. We've all gone astray, every one of us. And Lord, this morning we deserve your wrath. But you, Father, freely and willingly gave your Son. And Father, we thank you for his broken body. We thank you for his broken body on our behalf. We thank you, Father God, that we now have become truly alive, that you through Christ have made us whole. And that, Lord, we need these moments. We need the seriousness of this moment right now because, Lord, this world has a way of convincing us that we're still broken. It has a way of drawing us back to, to who we used to be. And Father, it's important for us to stop and be reminded of who we now are and how that happened. And so, Lord, cleanse us, Father, from all the things that make us feel so messy right now. We just confess before you the things in our life that are unpleasing to you, Lord. Help us to feel clean, to know your presence and your love. God, help us to see that because of your broken body, we're now made whole. God, we thank you We thank you for never letting us forget. Thank you for the opportunity to remember. Thank you for your son. In Jesus' name. So Jesus said that night in the upper room, he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we turn from the bread of life to the blood of life. The book of Leviticus tells us that the Life is in the blood. And when we think about the cup, when we think about the significance of the cup in the Seder meal at the Passover or the cup in the upper room, and we think about how the men sitting at that table couldn't have in a million years dreamt of what Jesus was about to do and how he was going to use that. The question that just begs to be asked is not why is God so serious about sin? Why is God so harsh about Sin, why does God demand such a high price for sin? That's really the wrong question to ask. The question as we consider the blood of Christ that we should be asking is this. How can a just God be loving towards rebellious sinners who deserve His wrath? What mechanism could there possibly be in all of the universe that would allow a person like me 
to be loved by a God who is utterly just and utterly righteous. How? What, what, what mechanism could, could bring two things that are as polar opposite as they could possibly be together? What has the power to do that? What, what in all the universe could accomplish that? What? In the book of First John, the scripture says that if we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That with our mouths, we can deceive ourselves and those around us. We can, we can say that we have fellowship with him. But if we walk in darkness, we're a liar. The scripture says, but verse seven, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. That there is something, there is one thing and only one thing. There is one possible remedy, one solution in all the universe. There's not two, there's only one. And it's the blood of Christ. The first thing I want you to see about the blood of Christ is that only the blood of Christ brings peace between us and God. That it's only the blood of Christ that could reconcile us to God that could could mend the distance that sin had placed between us and our Creator. Remember, God didn't create us to be broken. He created us to be in fellowship with Him. But what happened? As soon as sin entered the garden in Genesis chapter 3, distance came. There was shame. There was guilt. There was space between man and God. And so Adam and Eve hide and God comes to them. You know why God comes to them? Because God always comes to the sinner. The sinner never goes to God. God always comes first. God always seeks you out before you seek Him. And He sought them out. And Adam and Eve had covered themselves with fig leaves because of their shame and because of their guilt. But their fig leaves were insufficient. You see, because our own efforts to cover our shame and guilt will always be insufficient. And those fig leaves couldn't do what needed to be done. So what did God do? God slaughtered an animal. He shed blood. And He took the skin and made tunics for them and He clothed them, covering their shame. It's just a little foretaste. Of the meal we partake today, isn't it? That all these thousands of years later, God's still seeking us out. He's still covering our sin and our shame. He's reconciling us to Himself. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 that it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. And by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. That you see, peace between us and God comes through the blood of Christ and only the blood of Christ. Nothing else could reconcile us. Nothing else could allow a just God to love rebellious sinners. The second thing I want you to see about the blood of Christ is that it and only it can forgive our sin. Notice the scripture says that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Christ. It cleanses us from all of our sin, not some of our sin, not a good portion of our sin, not the majority of our sin, but all of our sin. That this morning we are able to come in confidence and, and say, God has 
cleansed me from all of my sin. That that is a remarkable truth. It's a remarkable reality. And that think of the generations of God followers before us that never had that luxury. That were never able to come before God fully cleansed. That their entire existence was centered around insufficient sacrifices. People that we read about in the pages of Scripture. People that we endeavor to model our lives after. People that God uses to instruct us didn't have even close to the privilege that we have this morning. To be able to say, we don't hope, but we know all of our sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is remarkable. Colossians goes on to say he's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son of love. That that word conveyed us, it means to to transfer citizenship, that we have been, our citizenship has been conveyed, transferred out of darkness into the kingdom of light in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, all sins, sins, plural Sins to the one who says, but pastor, you don't know what I've done. You don't know who I used to be. You have no idea how far down into the pit I've gone. If you knew the places I've been and the things that I've done, you, you wouldn't even be able to look at me. To which I say, I don't need to know. I know what the Bible says about the blood of Christ and that it's sufficient to cleanse us from all of our sins, past, present, and future. And we've got to stand and we've got to proclaim the glory and the joy that comes only from being forgiven. If nothing else, forgiven. Forgiven. Fully knowing that you are going to fail tomorrow. Fully knowing that that this week, although you don't know what's ahead for you, you don't know exactly how things are going to go. What you do know is that you will fail. And that this morning, in this moment, as we dwell upon the blood of Christ, you're forgiven. Forgiven. So you should begin to feel the, the, the anticipation building in your heart as, as you, you have moved from the, the brokenness of the body of Christ into the, the glory and the privilege of the blood of Christ. The third thing about the blood is that only the blood of Christ can Overcome our guilt. You see, we all know what it is to be guilty. And we all know what it is to battle that, that ever-present, nagging draw back into guilt over things that we've done. It's because we, we have to live our lives in this world and the one who dominates this world his purpose in your life is to accuse you is to accuse you before the brethren is to accuse you in the depths of your own mind is to condemn you with guilt and accusation but you know what the bible says about the blood of christ in revelation chapter 12 verse 11 It says, by the blood of Christ, you and me, we overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. That his blood overwhelms the voice of condemnation and shame and guilt. The fourth thing about the blood you need to see is only the blood of Christ can allow us to enter into God's presence. You see, because of the blood of Christ, we have liberty to go into the the Holy of Holies. The veil has been torn now. We have opportunity. We have a, a ever-present opportunity to be in the holy presence of God. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. It's by the blood that you can go. That do you realize that when you... 
When you, when you get in your quiet place, when you go into your prayer closet or you kneel down by the foot of your bed or sit in that chair where you meet with God, when you slip down onto your knees and you begin to pray to the Lord, you, as soon as your mouth opens, as soon as your eyes shut, you're in the presence of God. You're where God is. And the reason you're able to be where God is is because of the blood of Christ. That the blood of Christ bursts open the inner sanctum where God dwells. You know what the good news is? Not only can you and I go there, but we can go there anytime we want to. And we can stay as long as we like. That we, because of the blood of His Son, have unlimited access to the Father. The fifth thing about the blood is that only the blood of Christ can, only by that blood can our conscience be healed or cleansed. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, God knew everything that needed to be overcome in our lives. He knew that one of our big hindrances was going to be all the dead works that lingered in our memory and all the things in our past and all the, the, the useless endeavors that our lives have been clouded up with and and whenever we think about moving forward and serving Christ and stepping out in faith to do something for His glory, the accuser was going to bring those dead works back to the forefront of our mind. Going to try to disqualify us somehow. Somehow make us unworthy to be able to serve God. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the blood of Christ, it cleanses your conscience so that you can go forth and security and community with the Spirit of God and serve the Lord and bring glory to His name no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done. Six, and finally, I want you to see that only by the blood of Christ can we be complete and lacking nothing. What I think God wants some of you in here to know this morning is that you need to be reminded that you are whole, that all the places of your life that have been ripped apart by the wolves of this world, all the things that the, the wounds and the, the, the gaping uh, holes and all the things that maybe even the world can see or maybe they can't see, but all the things that make you feel broken and defeated, you're whole. The blood of Christ makes you whole. The blood of Christ, when it is applied to your life, listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought you, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will. I want you to know that there's no... There's no pecking order in the kingdom of God. That there's no ranking system amongst His children. That we're all equal at the foot of the cross. That He loves all of us fully and completely. That you are made whole. Not because of anything you've done. Not because of your pedigree or your family or your background or even your discipline. You don't do anything to earn His love. His love is bestowed upon you and you are made whole and complete by the shed blood of His Son and that only. And so you're... God wants you to know that you're okay. That whatever He's called you to do, whatever you desire to do for His glory in your heart, you can do that because you've been made complete for every good work. For every good work. The blood of the Lamb
is the only thing that can answer the question that of all questions needs to be answered the most. How could a holy and just God, how could he love sinners who are due his wrath? What could close that gap? What would, what would this conversation have been like prior to Calvary? No one, not the most spiritual person in the world, could have ever imagined. They would have simply shook their head and said nothing could close that gap. Nothing. Nothing could close it. It's too big. It's too wide. We've gone too far. It's too bad. And here we are. Remembering. The blood shed for us. That allows a holy and just God. To love sinners cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you that God, in this moment, we couldn't, we can't understand the width and the depth of the gap between us and you in our sin. And Lord, we thank you for that because none of us could bear it. We couldn't bear the reality of the full weight of everything that you accomplished by shedding your son's blood. But we can, in this moment, rejoice in what we do understand. That somehow in the most beautiful mystery, you made a way for us to be forgiven, for us to be cleansed, for us to overcome our guilt, for us to be able to burst forth into your presence, for our conscience to be cleansed, for us to be made complete, able to serve you and do all good works. God, we thank you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for every drop of his precious blood. We give you glory and praise as we remember. In his name, amen. The table. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, at the end of the Seder meal, when Passover was almost done, it was time to come to the last cup. It was a, uh, a building of anticipation. In fact, the Scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 26 that when Jesus and His disciples arose from the table, they sang a song of praise. That last cup at the table was the Hallel cup, the cup of praise to God. The cup that represented the only response that one would have, having just remembered all that God has done.
But considering the reality of everything that has been laid out before us this morning, there's really only one way that we can respond to all that God has done. And that is to, as His people, who have come this morning to worship before their Rescuer, to bring praise and honor to the name of the mender who came to fix that which is broken, to respond in our hearts before a gracious God who has done for us the unthinkable. He gave Himself. He forgave our sin. And He's ushered us into fellowship with Him. Sons and daughters could only respond to a father of this magnitude with Hallel. Praise. So let's stand to our feet and respond to our God. So as God's people would have departed from the Passover after praising His name and dwelling on all the greatness and the wonder that had been accomplished on their behalf. I always picture in my mind families walking along and having conversations about what had just transpired. Undoubtedly, there's those moments where Some are thinking, maybe I, maybe I haven't fully realized until right now everything that God has done. Maybe up until now I've, I've, I've gone through the motions. I mean, I was there, but... It just wasn't in my heart the way it is now. Maybe, maybe this morning you'd say, God, my life is still like the bitter herbs. I'm still just struggling in the tears and the pain and the trials of my own strength and everything that seems to be against me. Maybe you got up this morning and you were coming to church and you thought it was just going to be another Sunday morning at Michael Memorial. But now you're... You're realizing, God, you really are an amazing God. You truly are due all of our worship and praise. Lord, You are worthy above all things. Worthy You are, Lord. And if you're here this morning, if you're still in Egypt, if you're still in bondage, if you're still in slavery, His blood is still available. For you. So as we depart this table, we're going to have a few moments and reflect on everything that God has done. Maybe just as a family would walking home from the tabernacle. We're just going to spend a few moments in the quietness of response time. If you want to come and kneel at the altar and 
just worship the King and praise Him for what He's done, I invite you to do that. If you have a need in your life that me or one of the other pastors can pray for you about or encourage you in, then we would love to do just that. But whatever happens, don't leave this moment. Don't leave this moment with any regrets. If there's something that needs to be accomplished, then let's accomplish it. He's still a God who saves to the uttermost. If you need Him this morning, He's here for you. He's here for you. If He's calling you to plant your life here in this family, He's here for you. If it's time for you to stand publicly and follow Him in believer's baptism, He's here for you. Whatever your need, He's here for you. But my sincere hope and prayer is that when we depart this place today, we depart a people rejoicing in the love of our Father and the forgiveness of our sin. All of us together. Why would anyone leave without that? No regrets. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've shown us this morning, Lord. We thank you for this time you've given us together. God, how we have worshipped you, Lord. So, Lord, now in this time we pray that you'll give us boldness to respond to you, Lord. That we will not be ashamed. That, God, in this moment, in this time, we are not, we're not in a hurry. We have nowhere to be in the universe, Lord, but before you. A moment in your presence is better than a thousand years elsewhere, Lord. So as we come and we bow at this altar, as we incline our hearts to you, Lord God, we ask that you would come and do what only you could do, Father. We worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen. The altar's open. If if you need to sit, you sit. Come, kneel at the altar. If there's something we can pray for you about, we'd love to do that. You just respond as the Lord leads. We'll wait. Amen. You can be seated. As we uh, have prayed and sought the face of the Lord as to uh, what He would have us do this morning, uh, it's just such a blessing and encouragement in the way God just uh, encourages us and blesses us. And I was sitting at my desk and trying to work through all the multitude of uh, details that it takes for something like this to happen and um, just all the conversations that I've had with Craig and with Mickey. and So I'm putting the final pieces of this service together and I thought there's one final act of worship that we need to take and I think that this is the perfect time to take it because I feel like this is a way that oftentimes we resist the reality of this act of worship. But it really is an act of gratitude and thankfulness for all that God has done. And so as we uh, take this offering, this offering is a comes from the hand of a loving Father who so bountifully gives to us above and beyond that which we could ever ask or think or need. And then gives us the opportunity to return a portion to Him. And it is truly a blessing. It's a blessing to be able to give to such a giver. He's a giver. So let's pray and ask that the Lord will take this offering and He will multiply it as He sees fit that we might continue to, as a congregation, be a lighthouse spreading the gospel far and wide and that those who come and be a part of us might be changed as we have by the God who gives bountifully. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your goodness towards us, God. We thank You for an opportunity opportunity to give to such a giving God. 
You are a giver, Lord. And everything that we have is a gift from you, and we thank you for it. And so, Father, now we worship you in giving. And we thank you, Lord, and praise you as we continue to meditate on all that you've spoken into our hearts today. God, thank you. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for making sure that we never forget how much you love us. Thank you for the Lord's Supper. Oh, what a blessing it is. We give you glory and praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.